Welcome to Critical Value, the podcast from the Urban Institute that explores issues of significance for research, policy, and people. I'm your host, Justin Milner. On today's episode, we're going to be talking about an issue that's near and dear to my heart and the hearts of millions of other Americans, how to juggle the responsibilities of school and work when you have kids at home. So much of the discussion has been focused on virtual learning and the very real academic challenges that comes with it. If your home is anything like mine, you're getting familiar with a crazy number of education apps like Epic, Clever, iReady, Seesaw. I mean, my four-year-old now knows the difference between Microsoft Teams and Zoom and FaceTime. But that's not the full story of school difficulties. There are challenges within the home environment as well. You know, the world beyond the Zoom window. To dive into this topic, we're going to hear from two urban researchers and an on-the-ground expert. First off, let's start with a look at how families are handling virtual learning. My name's Megan Gallagher, and I'm a senior research associate at the Urban Institute Center on Education, Data, and Policy, and the Metropolitan Housing and Communities Policy Center. And of course, Megan doesn't just study schooling, she also lives it on the daily. I am a parent of 13-year-old twins who are in seventh grade in our local middle school, but they are also upstairs in middle school. So let's level set with the basics. Why is this school year different than any other? Megan says there are a few key reasons. So this year is exceptional because there are three major factors going on. There's the pandemic, which has caused a lot of learning loss with reduced instruction and problems with access to online learning and uneven expectations across students and schools. And the pandemic itself, it continues to delay in-person learning in many places, including districts that are not even planning to bring students into the classroom in 2020 at all. And that's not to mention the illness and loss of life that some students and teachers have experienced at home and at school. The pandemic alone would have been enough to affect this school year. Second, and not unrelated, of course, Megan notes that we're in the middle of a severe economic downturn. We're also experiencing an economic crisis, and that has affected businesses across the country, and millions have lost their jobs. And some of these workers are parents of school-age children or family members of teachers, and their economic instability is definitely going to affect their ability to focus on learning and teaching. And third, there's the broader context of ongoing racial injustice. But on top of the pandemic and the economic crisis is another set of factors for many students. It's the killing of George Floyd and the deaths of other Black individuals at the hands of police that have really highlighted the trauma that Black people and other people of color have experienced regularly. And so students and teachers have been affected personally and their communities have been affected by these events, which has added trauma to an already very difficult time. 
So these are the unprecedented challenges. And to get a better understanding of this context, Megan and colleagues analyzed the American Community Survey to see how home conditions for students could affect remote learning. We found that on average, a quarter of students do not have access to computer or broadband internet at home. If you don't have a computer and broadband access, it will be very difficult for you to join into virtual classrooms, which do demand a lot of computing power, and they're completely dependent on having a device of your own to participate. And there can be other challenges to learning as well. 14% of students live in crowded conditions at home, and those are places where there's more than one person per room. Households where there are crowded conditions, where parents are experiencing economic stress, where families are experiencing food insecurity, it really affects students' ability to focus on learning It makes it very difficult for anybody to focus in that kind of an environment. Megan and team also analyzed home conditions for students of color. Almost half of American Indian, Alaska Native students did not have computer or broadband access. And that share was one-third for Latinx and Black students. So... It's important to acknowledge that many of these conditions result from structural racism. They reflect inequality that existed before the pandemic. We also found that many students of color were likely to face multiple of these challenges at the same time. Latinx students were more likely than students from any other racial or ethnic group to face three or more of these challenges. Basically, it's critical to realize that academic learning is not just about what's happening in the Zoom window, but also what the broader home context looks like. This has always been in the background, but it's now more apparent than ever. So many of the factors that I've been talking about, these home conditions for students, in the past, they haven't defined education. But during this pandemic, they are really defining the educational experience of students, and they matter more than ever. And one scary side note is that this may result in fewer kids attending school in the first place. Half of all districts across the country have lower enrollment numbers than they expected. And some of those lower numbers are as high as 15% below what they expected. Okay, so these are some important insights. The next key question then, what can school districts do to help? To address many of the conditions that existed before the pandemic that we saw in our analysis, districts have been distributing food and computers and Wi-Fi hotspots. The District of Columbia recently announced that it would purchase internet access for low-income students in D.C. And in this case, the program would be targeted to families that receive TANF and SNAP benefits. In many cases, however, local community partners are better positioned to do this because they have long-standing relationships with families. So nonprofits are critical partners here. Schools and districts are really depending on them right now as they support distance learning and distribute resources to families. 
Megan says some nonprofits are also helping with internet access and tech support. Many students are using brand new devices and accessing the internet from home for the very first time. And sometimes families need advice on how and where to set up a learning space for students so that they can focus on school. Some of these organizations that have offered tutoring and mentoring have migrated fairly seamlessly to the online platform. And many nonprofits are also offering social and emotional support as well. Students and their families, they're experiencing such stressors. Many are experiencing trauma from isolation and economic insecurity and illness and loss. And many teachers are looking for signs of social and emotional stress as they teach. But it is really difficult from the digital platform to to be able to do that. So some of these organizations who've known these students and, and their families for longer periods of time have been able to offer support to parents and connections for students and their caretakers. So it's clear these community-based organizations are playing a critical and expanding role trying to help families during this time. To better understand their perspective, I spoke with a leader at one such organization. My name is Melissa Hicks, and I am the Albina Rockwood Promise Neighborhood Director at Self-Enhancement Inc. in Portland, Oregon. Melissa's organization provides services to youth and families in the school, outside of school, and also in the community. We are able to provide site-based, school-based services with a caseload of students. So we employ coordinators that work with families and the students specifically to help them set goals, to help them socially, academically, anything that they're needing, right? We really work with families to help them set and meet those goals for themselves to help reach stability and maintain stability. One of the things that we we like to do is if you have a student, we want to make sure that we're connecting to the rest of that family. It's not just about that junior in high school. It's about what are what's going on inside the household, too, and how can we support them if needed? Melissa says that these times have been really difficult for the families they work with. A lot of stress, a lot of stress and a lot of just fear of uncertain times when COVID first hit, you know, back in March. We were, we didn't know what to expect. So when it hit, it hit hard and it hit very fast. And when you just go from what's going on with COVID to being completely shut down, everybody stay at home, you're not allowed to leave your house. It's scary. And parents are definitely concerned about their kids in schools and making sure they're keeping up. What are your biggest fears is that their students will fall behind, but also the management of it. If I too am working from home right now, but I have a third grader who needs my support, I can't do both. And you're not going to get quality on both. And so just managing the distance learning has been definitely a challenge. But a lot of parents are also dealing with other challenges right now. And so helping them manage those fears and and pulling out their strengths and meeting, you know, delivering groceries across all of our Promise neighborhood, we were a big resource for food, tons of food insecurity. And if you don't have income, how are you supposed to go to the grocery store? Or if you didn't have a vehicle or way to get to the grocery store, how are you supposed to get those things? And so we were able to host several food banks and we continue to host several food banks across the county. 
Access to online learning can be a struggle for many families and can cause students to fall behind. The different platforms that schools are using can be complicated. It's like you go into one platform for your classes and then you're getting communication from another platform and just not understanding how to access the certain classes. That's been a struggle. So again, virtual learning and schools continue to present some challenges for families, but there's often another overlooked factor, parents' work. As you look at the narrative right now in the media, it talks a lot about the challenges of remote work, which I think is clearly hugely challenging for people. This is our final expert. I'm Gina Adams. I'm a senior fellow in the Labor, Human Services, and Population Studies Center at the Urban Institute. Gina says that, yes, remote work and learning is tough, but what about the parents that don't have that option? A lot of parents are still having to go to work. And so the luxuries of being able to stay at home, which is not a luxury for those of you who are doing it, but for a parent who can't stay at home to take care of their kids, it is kind of mind-boggling if you think about dealing with remote learning. The way I've been thinking about it recently is that parents have a real challenge of figuring out a balance between earning a living to support their kids, protecting their family's health and safety, and making sure that their kids are learning. And I don't think that we've done a very good job of figuring out what to do to support them in making the choices that they need to make so that they don't have to risk any of those outcomes. The Bureau of Labor Statistics reports that only 27% of families with children younger than 18 are actually teleworking at home in the past month because of the pandemic. Exacerbating this issue is that the whole market for childcare, you know, the place where working parents would typically place their kids during a workday, has been upended. So you have many programs that were closed during the pandemic. You have many of them are really struggling to reopen because there's real issues with the cost of care. You have you can serve less children. You have higher costs of PPE and cleaning. You have staff that are very scared about coming back the same way teachers are. You have all of these issues. So you have very slow reopening, particularly in center-based programs, which serve more kids. And this is a problem for the short term and the long term. So if these close for a while, it's not at all clear they're going to be opening back up because it's not clear. You can't just kind of snap and turn back on the lights and have all the teachers there and pay all the salaries if you don't know whether or not you're going to be able to operate. So there's a very big concern about six months from now, a year from now, whether we're going to have childcare like we had six months ago. We don't have it right now. Not at all clear it's coming back unless there's kind of a pretty big investment in stabilizing the supply. There's not only the impact now on the workforce, but if we don't figure out how to stabilize the childcare sector, then this is going to continue a year or two down the line because that childcare is not going to be there if that mom does want to get back in the labor force and has a job. So it's a much bigger impact than just the short term that we're facing right now. So who's most at risk when families don't have a stable kind of care when parents are out of the house? Black and Latino kids are much more likely to be negatively impacted by distance learning. and. Specifically, they estimated that if children don't return to in-school learning until January of 2021, which unfortunately now seems optimistic, right? They estimate that Black students are going to be on average 10.3 months behind where they would have been with in-class learning, Latino students 9.2 months behind, and low-income students overall will be 12.4 months further behind, a full year. That's in comparison to about 6.8 months for all kids overall. 
if we don't help these kids and families during this indefinite time of remote learning, they could be facing some pretty major challenges down the road. And it's not like you can just make it up next year, right? Kids have developmental times in their life when they need to be learning certain things. We know that learning to read by third grade makes a big difference. You lose half of first grade and all of second grade, you've got a pretty big problem. These are kids that already were facing inequities, right? We already know that there's achievement gaps. And this pandemic is basically going to significantly increase that. And if these kids don't have access to somebody who can help them figure out how to access the learning opportunities that they have, which is remote, then it's going to be even worse. And it's important to note that the lack of childcare is also likely going to have a disproportionate impact for women in the workforce. The other issue that I think is really important to understand is that, you know, it's not like if you stay out of the labor force as a mom for a year, and let's just say, luckily enough, you're able to jump back in the next year, which is a big question with the recession and all the other issues we're facing, and who knows what's going to be happening with childcare. This reduces their lifelong earnings. Because you have lowered your trajectory, basically. There was an interesting study done a couple of years ago where they estimate that the time out of the labor force, for each year you spend out of labor force, you're reducing your lifetime earnings by three to four times what you would have earned. So each year you're out. And this, so this has long-term impact, right? This has impact on retirement. <laughs> this has impact on your ability to support your kids five years from now. So what are some of the things that we should be looking to do to help solve this issue? So unless the public sector really steps in and says, we're going to do something, it's going to be impossible to fix because parents can't do it and providers can't do it. There's nobody else. Businesses, you know, could be doing more, but they're not going to be fixing this problem. They pay, I think, 1% of the entire national, you know, investments in childcare comes from the business community. So it's, so anyway, so I think on a big level, somebody needs to take responsibility Gina says that on a more concrete level, we need to have that vision operating at the state and local level and at the national level. We need to have those people coming together and saying, okay, so what are we going to do? And what each system needs to do their piece. So childcare subsidy system has many things they can do to try to, if they get more resources, because they don't have enough to serve even a fraction of the people who are eligible now, and you're suddenly really increasing the demand. So first of all, you need to fund it. Second of all, there's a whole bunch of policy changes that the subsidy system could make that would make it easier for families with school-age kids to get the kind of care. One of the big ones is that we have to make sure that subsidies can be used to pay for care that's in homes. Because right now, given the health risks, many families want their child either in their own home or with just one or two other kids, and they should be allowed to do that. They should be allowed to place their kids' health and safety and their family's health and safety as a very high priority, and we need to support that. Because if we don't, they're still going to stay keep their kid home, right? I mean, they're not going to be risking their kids' health if they can possibly avoid it. In the end, Gina hopes that this difficult moment can actually turn into an opportunity for us to address these ever-present challenges for working families in America. What I would love is for us as a country to recognize that childcare is a public good. And what's very interesting to me right now is, you know, I've never seen the business community more clear about that the lack of childcare is really jeopardizing their ability to do their jobs. I've never seen it be more in the media before. And I think we now we have an opening to say, have people understand this is a fundamental part of our economy. This is what allows people to go to work. This is what allows parents to feed their kids. <laughs> this is what allows many things that we value as a country that actually benefit all of us, not just children and their parents, right? This is, you want 
you know, some massive proportion of the workforce are parents, right? I mean, this is not like just some, some marginal group we can just say, oh, I, we don't really care. They can go away and come back some other time. As always, we'll close with some key takeaways. Here are three things to remember. One, this school year is different than any other due to the pandemic, a severe economic recession, and a national reckoning on systemic racism and racial injustice. When we think about the challenges of learning from home, we need to look beyond the Zoom window to the full home context of kids and families. Two, the challenges that kids and working families face can be significant, ranging from a lack of internet connection to food insecurity and crowded home environments. And it's important to note that students of color may be most likely to be negatively impacted by distance learning. And three, families need support to get through this. For example, it will be critical for there to be funding for childcare subsidy programs to help parents with school-aged children who don't have the luxury of working from home. So that's our show. Big thank you to Melissa Hicks, Megan Gallagher, and Gina Adams. Big thank you as well to producer Jacinth Jones. And of course, thanks as always to our sound editor, Riley Byrne from podigy.co. That's P-O-D-I-G-Y dot C-O. Our music is by Moby. And if you've been enjoying our show, I think you'd also enjoy the podcast Technopolis. Hosted by urban tech expert Molly Turner and startup advisor Jim Capsis, Technopolis launched a new mini-series on how COVID-19 might transform cities. They looked at questions like, will our phones replace servers at our neighborhood restaurants? Could robots displace domestic workers? And might open streets create a more equitable mobility future? For answers to these questions, subscribe to Technopolis wherever you get your podcasts. Finally, on behalf of the Critical Value team and my two kids who are distance learning and continue to be my co-producers. Podcasts are great. I also like watching the leaves fall down. And I also like Halloween going to kitchening. And goodbye. <laughs>